Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Every time I've gone on a journey, I've changed and gained a lot of knowledge. You know, sometimes it's not knowledge that's there initially, and sometimes you really have to, like, look back at something and, like, process it. But I've never gone on a journey and been like, oh, man, that was a waste. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That was a clip from my interview today with Paul Barak, who did a pilgrimage on a little-known 1,500-year-old trail in Japan. Of course, we talk about that. We talk about pilgrimages in general. If you think about the definition of a pilgrimage, it is, according to dictionary.com, a journey, especially a long one, made to some sacred place as an act of religious devotion. But do you really have to be religious in the traditional sense to take on something like this? How can... Doing something like this impact your travel experience. We talk about the power of movement. We talk about the importance of having a purpose, how setting goals is not just an arbitrary exercise, but can actually get you to those places you want to go in the world. And uh, something really powerful I want to share today when I was recording this that gave me the chills. I'm going to talk about that. We touch on why society might be built to make you unhappy And what you can do about it, of course, I've got a shout out to somebody in the community who shares a bit of wisdom around chunking out your time, how chunking out your time can actually not only give you a framework through which to reflect on certain things, but also can help you plan out your life. And there's a ton more going on in this episode besides what I just mentioned. So we should probably get into it now. What do you think? Buckle up, strap in, grab your favorite beverage, relax, thanks for being here, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. The dark days of winter are here in Oslo, Norway, but not to worry. We've got a lot of candles burning. We've got... uh, 
some Christmas lights up and you know we're 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 hunkering down for the winter here and I'm not sure where you're at maybe you're outside in a t-shirt jogging if so good for you send a little sun my way uh, if you're hunkered down as well and it's cold where you are anyway we're all in this together right we're all one big beautiful community so welcome to the show as you heard at the top we have so much going on in today's episode you know I always do my best to pack as much value into these episodes for you as humanly possible and I believe that we're delivering today so enjoy it Pilgrimages are an interesting means of travel, I think, for many reasons. We get into it in the interview. I don't want to spoil that. We have a lot going on in this discussion, but of course, the center point is based around Paul's journey doing this 1,500-year-old little-known pilgrimage in Japan. This got me thinking about the definition of pilgrimages and what this might mean to the traveler, maybe the non-religious traveler, you know, for the, I think the religious traveler, it can be pretty cut and dry if you're somebody who, say, walking the Camino de Santiago in Spain and you are doing it for religious reasons. But there are many people that do that trail, for example, or other pilgrimages around the world that aren't necessarily doing it because they are religious. They're doing it for the travel experience. Maybe they're doing it for a spiritual experience as well. And what does that mean when you set yourself up for a journey like that? It's different than maybe just going and you know spending a weekend or a week in uh, in the islands, or you know you know you're going to go to Paris for a week or whatever. It's it's a lot different to think about walking on an ancient religious trail and how that might change the travel experience. So we get into all this during our chat, and I'm going to share some more thoughts about pilgrimages. After the interview, so after the interview portion of this show, stick around. We'll chat a bit about that. And you'll also hear from somebody in this community who dropped me a voicemail and shared a little bit about how he looks back on his life in chunks of time. And this ties in with the the thing that really gave me the chills when this whole episode came together. So I want to talk to you about that as well. Of course, we'll have a quote and plenty of other good stuff. Okay, let's get into the interview with Paul. Again, stick around. we got a ton of stuff on the back end, and I will see you on the other side. Have you ever thought about undertaking one of the world's famous historic pilgrimages? Should you or should you not consider adding your first or next pilgrimage to your bucket list? Today, we're going to talk about one that you may want to consider. My guest is the author of Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, Misadventures on a Buddhist Pilgrimage. It's a book about his time walking a little-known 1,500-year-old pilgrimage in Japan on Shikoku Island. You'll hear what that experience is like, how fusing travel with spirituality can change the travel experience Japan as a destination and much more. I'm going to cut uh, right to it now and welcome Paul Barak to the That's podcast. It. That is correct. Thank you. Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You know, before I actually went into that intro, I probably should have asked you how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's totally fine. Thankfully, since 2007, after a lifetime of people mispronouncing it, uh, no one's mispronounced it since. <laughs> right on. So, uh, so thanks, uh, Obama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right on. Congrats on the book. I mean, that's no small feat. We'll get into that. But thank you. Yeah, I wanted to talk about 
how this all came about for you, I guess. I mean, because, you know, I've been reading through the book and and one of the things you said pretty early on was that I'm just going to read the quote here that you were a chubby 13 year old who decided to turn off the TV and start jogging. And I've been an athlete lettering for sports, uh, bicycling century bike rides and running the Seattle marathon. So, you know, when you talk about walking a long distance and, and that is a travel experience, I think, uh, I don't know if athletics comes into play as much or if you just get fit on the trail, but I just kind of wanted to bring this up because it seems like this was maybe a bit of a turning point for you in your life and, and kind of steered yourself towards athletics after that. I'm not sure. You want to talk about this particular sentence, I guess, and clue me in on uh, what was going on with you back in the day? <laughs> sure. It's funny. My parents were so surprised because, you know, from the time of like 10, I think I just kind of started sitting on a couch and watching TV and I didn't really move for like three years. My parents were like, what's going on with our son? And uh, I at the time wasn't exactly uh, as certain as I am now that chronic depression. But uh, yeah, just one day I was like, you know what, I think I'll take up jogging. And I just, it just started this journey for me of getting into shape and suddenly feeling that, uh, power and that, you know, joy of traveling under your own power. But as, uh, I repeatedly learn, there's just such a difference from being in athletic shape, being in hiking shape, and then being in through hiking shape. Because every time I've come back and started another trail, like you just, you know, it, it never gets easier. I feel like you have to be a through hiker to be in through hiking shape. Right. Which means you have to just get out and do it to an extent. Was this like a dark time, man? I think it's obviously if you're 10 years old, 10 to 13, I mean, you're like you said, it's, I don't know if you're child brain can wrap your head around like, you know, uh, a psychological diagnosis. You know what I mean? It's just kind of, it is what it is. But I mean, looking back, it sounds like that was chronic depression. Like you said, I mean, was that kind of like a dark time for you? Was it really hard to pull out of that? Or was it really just like one day I just got outside and started jogging? I mean, the getting outside and starting jogging kind of pulled me out of it. I think also part of it was being 13 and thinking like, how am I going to ever attract girls to me? Right. You know, that's jogging that's pretty high in the 13 year old brain priority (laughs) list or girls or boys depending on gender or what you're into and stuff for sure (laughs) Um, but yeah i think you i don't know i remember it as being kind of a switch like age 10 i besides you know having nightmares really frequently as a kid i was doing okay and pretty happy and then just 11 years old hit me like a ton of bricks and I, I do remember just times of like laying on the floor, like staring up at the ceiling and my brother being like, oh, come on, Paul, let's go out and play. And I just couldn't move. Like there was just something weighing me there. Getting into, you know, high school, I mean, it sounds like you continued with athletics uh, and that's been a big part of your life. I'm not sure. Is that still a, a big part of your life now? Kind of being active in this way? And Yep. It's the only thing that's consistently uh, helped with, you know, depression and my mood is getting outside and working out. 
Well, let's talk about travel a bit. I mean, you mentioned kind of even then realizing how empowering it was to be able to go out and do something under your own power and just get somewhere, even if it's just around the block or whatever. I don't know what you've done career-wise. Like, did you go to college? Did you come out and start? Were, were athletics a part of your career? Was that something you did on the side? Or like kind of what what did you get into coming out of school? Um, let's see. Well, I mean, in high school, yeah, athletics was just a uh, constant um, I ran cross country. I played soccer for a year. I competitively dove for a year, and uh, I play and I played cr- uh, lacrosse for three years. Um, but getting out of it, yeah, it just was always like I need to be able to move, and be, you know, I chose jobs that allowed me to get out and you know, like pursue uh, becoming a black belt in Kyokushin martial arts. So how did you get to do that with a job? Um, I just picked a job that was, you know, a contract position working in offices. So there was no take home work. So the second that work was done, I was out the door, you know, immediately taking off my tie and uh, shirt and being like, all right, that's that's done for another day. Yeah. So you were working. It wasn't the job itself that got you moving, but you were prioritizing like the stuff you were doing in your free time and making sure that whatever you picked was able to, you were just kind of able to leave behind and pursue what you wanted in your free time, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I've never worked a job that, uh, I had to work any more than 40 hours at. Was it a struggle like being in the office? Cause you're a guy who likes to get out and move. And I mean, I think for a lot of travelers, people listening to this show, definitely can relate relate to that like i think the people that are maybe even dwelling in the cubicle right now i mean a lot of people are working from home now of course but it's a struggle i think for people that like to get out and explore you know it really was a constant struggle uh it always felt like whatever i was doing had no real purpose to me like uh i, I realized one day as working the longest office job i ever worked that most of most of the output that I'd ever created over three years could be erased with a magnet and it wouldn't make that much of a difference. Oh man, that's like kind of a heavy realization. (laughs) 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 Well, let's talk about purpose then. How important is, is having a purpose? I feel like having a purpose is one of the most important things. Uh, because otherwise you're experiencing this, I mean, to put it in the you know most uh, dramatic terms possible, this miracle known as consciousness and this miracle that you get to experience the world and experience what, you know, if you're, if you have the freedom to whatever you choose. And so to have a purpose and to know what's driving you forward I feel like kind of molds your life, like going through water, you know, like if you know your direction, the water will part for you, but you have to have that momentum going forward for it to do that. Otherwise you're just going to float and let the currents take you wherever they're going to take you. What would you say your purpose is? Uh, I think my purpose from an early age was to live. 
as I got a little older, my purpose was to just kind of know myself and to grow. Like when I was 24, 25, I had this conversation with my dad. Uh, you know, I was feeling very lost in life. And he said, you know, you just, you just have to choose who you want to become. And for him, I believe that uh, was anything rhyming with Octor or Oyer. But <laughs> for me, it, I, as I was jogging, I was like, you're right, Dad. I should become a black belt in karate and teach English in South Korea and bicycle across the United States. And I picked these seven goals for myself because as I was jogging, I had this vision of myself at age 30 as someone who'd done all of that. And he was someone I wanted to be. He was someone happy with his life who felt like they'd taken control of, you know, this, this miracle that is consciousness. Just staying on purpose for a second. I mean, these seven goals in a way, I mean, it's almost like you talked about like kind of being in the jobs and thinking, all right, well, Hey, this magnet could just race three years of work and it wouldn't matter. Was, was setting these seven goals, almost like reclaiming your purpose, like kind of like you went out and jogged that like reclaimed your power in a way. Was it like a sort of a similar inflection point for you? It was a direction. It was a direction to go. And it was also, I think an exercise in learning that you can accomplish things and learning that the discipline that it takes is within you. Um, because, you know, when I was younger, I, one of the reasons I felt lost and, you know, I mean, I still sometimes feel lost in my life. I don't think that ever goes away, but it always is this fear that what if I put all of this effort into something and it doesn't work out? What if I go the wrong direction and I spend money and time doing something that it turns out I'm not that interested in. And, you know, like uh, a realization that I had when I ran my second marathon, um, and it's a realization that I've had before, but never quite put into so many words, was I was, you know, I was running the second marathon and I started to go a minute per mile faster than I'd ran the last one. And I kept passing people and they kept calling out this time that I didn't think I could maintain. And I was just thinking like, you know, don't burn yourself out. Do you got to slow down. You got to maintain what happens if you don't finish this, you're going to feel terrible. And then I just around mile 10 suddenly thought, you know, why don't you just stop telling yourself what you can and can't do and find out? Hmm. And I feel like that's a lesson I keep having to come back to, even though I keep learning a new thing I can do, but there's always that thought in the back of your mind. That's like, well, sure. You've done all of that, but I mean, you know, are you sure you can do this? That's great, man. That's like, you know, silencing the mind, right? I mean, that's just kind of what they talk about with meditation. I mean, you're just like, hey, shut up. Let's just let's just do it and see where where it goes, right? Stay in the present moment. Yeah, right. Don't uh what is it? Anxiety is excess future and regret is excess past. Hmm. I haven't heard that. That's that's pretty well said, I'd say. You know, your dad's advice, although he might have had the octor and the the oyer rhymes with it in his head choose to become who you want 
right? Or become who you want is basically choose, is what he said. Choose what you want to become. Choose what you want to become. That's what it was. I mean, that's another sort of thing. It's just saying, hey, like basically to answer that question, you have to pick some kind of direction, right? I mean, if that's in the short term, it's like, all right, well, I want to become like a nomadic traveler or I want to, I want to travel the world for a couple of years or whatever. Well, that's, that's a, a direction to go in. And I think like once you have a direction, it just makes your other decisions in life a lot easier. I feel right. Yeah. Yeah. Without doubt. Cause once, once you have a direction, you, every other decision you have to make is either moving towards that direction or away from it. And also everything you're presented with has a context. Exactly. That helped me get unstuck quite a bit. You know, like, uh, I feel like I was definitely for a long time. I wanted to, I was like the guy like to have my options open, you know, you like to have a lot of options. I mean, I think as travelers, it can be naturally curious about a lot of things in the world. You want to try different things and experience different things. But at a certain point, like you have to also pick some kind of direction because it can, like you said, it gets you moving in a way. And, and, and then if you combine that with choosing to become who you want to become, then you're kind of bringing it all together in a way, right? Let's get into this pilgrimage. Where were you in life when you decided that that was going to be a thing? And Maybe you should just give us an overview quickly of the pilgrimage itself. And when did you become fascinated by it? Sure. So uh, the Shikoku pilgrimage is, as you said, it's a 1,500-year-old pilgrimage that more or less is the is a walking tour of the many feats of this very famous Japanese monk and holy man called uh, named Kukai uh, or Kobo Daishi, which means uh, the great Dharma teacher. Um, so he was this aristocratic youth born around the 1800s who was his parents sent him to Confucian College and he just kind of decided this is not what I want to do. And ended up as an ascetic monk wandering around Shikoku Island. Uh, at one point, he got it. He sat in a cave uh, on Cape Maroto on the on Kochi, one of the four regions. Stared out to where the sky and the sea met, which is how he got his name, Ku Kai, and achieved enlightenment. And after that, he left became a uh, kind of an ambassador to China, received more esoteric Buddhist wisdom, and then came back and like built levees and built reservoirs, founded temples, but also, you know, scared off a lot of ghosts from temples and fought a dragon on a mountain and other stuff that, you know, might have happened, but probably not. Um, <laughs> so... That's the that's a pilgrimage, and it visits 88 temples circling uh, the rim of Shikoku Island. Shikoku means four regions, and each of the four regions uh, corresponds to a different level of spiritual progress that you make along the island. So at the start, you're in Tokushima, the land of awakening faith. You move on to the longest and hardest section, Kochi, the land of ascetic training. You move from there to Ehime, the land of enlightenment, and finally end at Kagawa, the land of nirvana, and then circle back to Temple One because the journey never stops. Uh, how I heard about it was in a college in a class I was barely paying attention to called uh, Japanese Religion and Culture, 
which I took because I thought it'd be an easy class because they just cover ninjas for at least one day. And, I loved uh, ninjas when yeah. I was growing up. Who didn't? We're both children I mean, of the 90s. Yeah. I mean, and, Chinese stars and oh yeah, you know, masks smoke, and smoke the, bombs. Smoke bombs, the silent walking. Yeah. I wanted it all. Just beheading. <laughs> 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 so I was thinking like easy class and I'd soon be disappointed much as I was when Jewish mysticism didn't teach me how to make a mud golem. So this, I'm barely paying attention, but this one day, uh, the teacher rolls in uh, one of those, one of the TV screens, which tells you how old I am, and puts in a VHS, and it's this documentary about Shikoku Island. And I kind of look away from the window at the screen, and I see this, uh, I see this man in a round sedge hat with a walking staff and a white vest, passing by these, you know, endless rice fields and meditating under waterfalls and praying at these temples and just kind of in this weird like half vision I might honestly misremember but I just in a flash saw myself there on the screen like doing the same thing that's my memory of it this episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank recently I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday yes we have taco Friday in Norway not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Uh, and then, you know, about eight years later, I'm sitting in an office job I, where you could erase all my progress with a magnet, you know, just staring at a computer screen and thinking, you know... Like, I guess this is what life is supposed to be. 
you know, I guess I'm just supposed to settle for this. I'm 28. I've traveled a bit and now everyone's telling me this is responsible. This is what you should be doing. And in a moment, I just thought, you know what? This can't just be it. I need to go do one more thing, just one more thing before I settle into this like, okay life. I mean, I guess I'll get used to waking up sighing every day. And that's when I just had that flash again of me in the vest with the hat, walking by the rice fields and praying at the temples. And I decided like, yep, I am going to go hike the Shikoku pilgrimage. And I did not decide, yep, I'm going to check if my shoes fit. Or yes, I will learn Japanese. Or yes, I will check if it's the hottest summer on record. So pretty much everything went wrong from the start. Yeah. But I mean, uh, at that point, what kind of traveling had you done? Had you, you mentioned like teaching English in South Korea and some of these other things. Had you done some of that stuff? Yeah. Uh, so out of college, uh, you know, to be very basic, I backpacked across Europe. And while I was in college, uh, I'd gotten very lucky and been able to study abroad in southern Spain for three months. So went out and then after... After uh, backpacking through Europe, came back, just started doing office work. Uh, then, you know, got tired of it, taught English in South Korea for a year, came back. And that's when I got a job that paid me better than any job ever had before, which yeah. sadly still wasn't that much. The golden uh, handcuffs? Yep. <laughs> the silver yep. handcuffs, I guess. I know, just those twin mm-hmm. handcuffs of uh, health care. And, uh, you know, being able to buy some of the mid-range alcohol sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So when you, I mean, you were kind of like taking what what maybe you'd call travel chances along the way in in the sense of it wasn't like you worked like a full-time nine-to-five job from the moment you got out of college. I mean, you've had these other travel experiences. So you mentioned this kind of being one more thing. I mean, were you just... Was it really going to be like in your head, like this was going to be the last hurrah and then you're going to settle down a quote unquote regular life? Or did you think? You know, uh, it was to, in my brain, there, there's always been this battle that I still fight, which is when are you going to settle down? When are you going to find a career that you're able to, you know, raise kids with and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I think, for this time, it really was like, okay, you've got a better job than you've ever had before. And it's one that if you work hard at it and, you know, just stick with it, you could get hired on full time. Yeah. You know, but like, then everything kind of you. changed when you made this decision. So how long between making the decision and you're like, hey, there's got to be more than this. I'm going to do this Shikoku pilgrimage. And like you set foot on the trail, what was that amount of time? Uh, I think it was somewhere around six months. Oh, okay, so this was pretty fast. Yeah, like once yeah. you made the decision, you were you were in it to win it. Yep. Were you studying? Like, were you in Asian studies or something like that in college? I mean, why were you in these religious classes? Were you doing something? Uh, just, or was it just general? Just general liberal arts education. Like, I I became a. Uh, political science international relations major just because uh, I got really interested in current events and still I'm really fascinated by world events. But uh, Japanese religion and culture was just one of those classes where I was like, oh, this, you know, this might be a fun third class. 
Uh, and, you know, uh, Jewish mysticism actually turned out to be one of the most influential classes I ever took. And I think if I'd taken it a year earlier, uh, I would have become a religion major. But it was no one really told me why I was going to college. They just told me you should go to college. So I did and I got my degree, but I don't think I've ever used it <laughs> other than as prestige. Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, I mean, I can give you the dictionary definition of pilgrimage. It's a journey, especially a long one, made to some sacred place as an act of religious devotion. I mean, you have all these things you can do, right? Like if you want to go on a long hike, you could hike the Appalachian Trail, you know, you, I guess you've ridden your bike across the United States. I mean, there's all these different things you can do. But at that moment in your life, you've been working this job. You're like, you know, I'm, I'm dissatisfied with this. So I'm just, I guess what I'm getting at is like, why, why this thing? Because it's, it's got a spiritual element to it. What was the draw for you there? The draw for me was uh, I had always been really fascinated with Japan and I'd only got, like, I'd originally applied to teach English in Japan, got rejected, and that's why I ended up in South Korea, because I knew I could just go over to Japan for a visit. But I once I got back, I just did not feel like I was done with Japan. Like, it's just always held, you know, not not like a land of mystery, but just a land where... You know, I really love the Zen philosophy that came out of it. I really love the aesthetic design of Japanese of Japanese art. I've, you know, I was a fan of anime and just what they were, just the imagination of the Japanese people in their art to me has always been mind blowing. And so, yeah, it was just a culture that I wanted to know more. And it felt like this was a really interesting, unique way to not just, you know, spend a week drinking in Tokyo, but to actually devote myself to something that I would remember and something that would change my life. So not not a vacation, you know, a journey. Right. A journey, yeah. And a pilgrimage certainly qualifies as that. I mean, anytime you go into a an adventure or a trip, you know, you're gonna have it's natural to have expectations. Going into a pilgrimage, I feel like those expectations, they're just maybe different in, in some ways, right? Like, do you have like, could you have expectations of enlightenment or some profound insight? You know what I mean? Like, how does... Yeah, I definitely was arrogant enough to have expectations of enlightenment and profound insight. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, it's it's, you know, it's almost setting yourself up for... I mean, in a way, it's good because you're like, you're opening your mind to that element of the experience, right? You're like, not only is this a travel and a cultural experience, but I'm also going to open my, my mind to these potential spiritual experiences, if that's something you're interested in, right? But then on the other side of that coin is that, how do you push that, right? Like, you could be on like, you know, day 25, like, damn it, why aren't I like, uh, you know, wiser? Why aren't I more patient? Why aren't I more in the moment? You know what I mean? Like, it's like... It's kind of a hard um, thing to balance. I think I was thinking that by day 10. (laughs) (laughs) It was a hard thing to balance, and it was something that happened really gradually for me. Like, you know, my first day, there was all of this excitement of like, oh, my God, I'm here. And I go and I, I go to the first temple, you know, walking in as myself and walking out. 
wearing the pilgrim's hat, wearing the vest, wearing carrying the staff and the stamp book right. and the it's prayer like your dream. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah. That's then, happening. Yeah. And then end of the day, I get charged by a boar. So it was definitely an introduction of like, oh, this is more serious than I thought. And then day three, I'm collapsing from dehydration and I end the day like terrified because I'm thinking, I don't know if I can survive another day where I'm collapsing with dehydration for six hours. Like, because it's it, that, it, it's that physically grueling, this particular one. Yeah. It's physically grueling. It's, uh, you know, it's mentally grueling. I had to pick myself up and say, okay, another 50 steps, just another 50 steps. You can do it. Maybe there'll be water at the temple. But I, even on that day, I did make a profound decision that like, I'm going to keep walking until I collapse. I will not give up on this right now. And, you know, like going and saying the prayers uh, at every temple, like the first, I think week, maybe, uh, I was, or at least the first couple of days, every time I said the prayers at a temple, uh, I'm, I'm going to say this two ways. Uh, it felt like a great weight, an energetic weight was like growing in my chest and I sank to my knees cause I couldn't keep standing and saying the prayers but that also could have been heat exhaustion and running out of breath constantly. But yeah, it was, and saying the prayers didn't have like, I, I, as far as Buddhist as I was, was I was, I very much believed in the Zen idea of trying to be present and uh, I meditated every day, but you know, the prayers didn't have real meaning for me and they wouldn't, for a while, like until I said, you know what, I'll every time I say the prayers, I'll think of someone in my life who I want the best for. And I'll be saying the prayers for them. And then, you know, two weeks in, uh, after just a horrible time where basically my shoes didn't fit, and there were no shoes in my size in rural Japan. And so every step was incredibly painful. You know, my feet were, there was a three day, three time a day ritual of having to cut blisters, like rebandage. And I'm just trying to stay in the moment and looking at this beautiful, beautiful countryside, you know, of these boats floating in the harbor and hard candy bright roofs and, you know, these undulating walls of green by the ocean. And sometimes, you know, fields of glittering fireflies or, or dragonflies at dusk. But at the same time, like, I'm in constant pain. And it's so hard to find the meaning and to stay in the moment and stay spiritually connected when every step hurts. And it wasn't until at the end of the land of ascetic training, fittingly enough, that I decided, you know what? I have been wanting things from this pilgrimage and I have not been giving to this pilgrimage. And so I am going to every temple, like I've been offering my prayers. I've been offering a written note slip called Osama Fuda and a couple of coins, which is the tradition. I am also going to offer up all of my pain, all of my boredom, all of this effort that I'm constantly putting in. And that is the meaning that I will find. 
And so, yeah, it's just stuff like that happens gradually. And it's stuff that you kind of have to emotionally and mentally earn for yourself. Because no one can really tell you what your journey is. You find it out yourself. Yeah, getting to that point where you're able to offer that stuff up and actually mean it and maybe release it in some way. I, I love this concept that you just brought up of, I mean, I think this can apply to any traveler in any type of journey, right? It's like this idea of like, hey, I want something from this versus I'm going to give to this. That is, that can be a game changer, I think. It, yeah, it, it was for me. And one of the one of the lessons I took away from the pilgrimage was don't define the journey while you're still on it. Yeah. Because if I defined the journey early on, it's like, this sucks. I'm in pain. This is a waste of time. I would not have come to that point. I had to every day look for what is this and what am I learning? You mentioned before, you know, giving meaning to the, to the prayers. They didn't really mean anything to you until you, you know, included some people in your life that you wanted to include in them and, and, and they gave you meaning. So it's like, you know, what I'm hearing is these, you know, these small things along the way are, are things that, uh, you know, you give meaning to these things and, and you give and you can get something out of it, but then you don't want to give meaning. If you, if you go take the bird's eye view, you don't at the same time want to give meaning to the whole journey right there because that's, that's a bigger chunk, right? You yeah. have to like, and it, you have to process that later. <laughs> for sure. And it can also blind you to what the journey is actually about. Yeah. It's hard think, to learn if you're, if you're just having expectations all the time, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's something I've taken on every journey since like, and each journey I've been on, I come, I come away with it, uh, with, Sometimes what I wanted when I started, but not, but definitely not in a way that I would have predicted. So like, you know, I, when I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, three years ago, you know, I was leaving behind this trauma and grief from two suicides and, uh, just a lot of, a lot of things that I hadn't worked on or fully processed. And I just thought, you know what? I will, I'm hoping the woods are better than where I'm living now, but I don't know what this journey is going to be or if I'll complete it or whatever. And then three years later, I'm looking back on that journey like, oh, I totally understand what that was about now. What was it about? Uh, it was about meeting my wife. Wow. Yeah. Create like it's something else. Like I'm working on, I don't know, hopefully another book about it. But, you know, the first suicide, which was the hardest one, was October 23rd, 2015. And October 23rd, 2017, you know, I met up with um, a, an acquaintance I had from when I back when I used to do comedy. We both finished up uh, a long journey. She'd gone on a university fellowship. I'd hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. And so, you know, we were just liking each other's photos on Instagram. And she said, Hey, do you want to meet up for a beer? I really want to hear about your hike. And I was like, yeah, I love talking about myself. This will be great. <laughs> and so we uh, met up, you know, the day before her birthday, because she was going to go fly off uh, to Portugal to have a birthday weekend or a birthday week. And I would only kind of realize later, Oh, that was October 23rd, 2017. 
But because I'd hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and had like gained so much from it, I was feeling up enough that that anniversary, you know, didn't lock me at home. That anniversary like let me, you know, be like, okay, well, you know what? I still want to go have a friendly beer with someone. And that was the first date with my wife. Wow. (laughs) This is, these are the things where you're, you know, if you're in an office and you're like, you're worried about giving up the, the golden handcuffs, like we talked about, or the silver handcuffs, maybe if it's not, you know, the best paying job or whatever, these are the unpredictable elements of what we can, it sounds like what we've been referring to travel as, which is essentially a journey. If you're taking it, undertaking it this way. I mean, it sounds like travel for you has really been maybe the ultimate tool in, I don't want to generalize, but you know, certainly one in one aspect, letting go maybe. I think it's been or learning. Yeah. I mean, I think to generalize it is every time I've gone on a journey, I've changed and gained a lot of knowledge. Um, you know, sometimes it's not knowledge that's there initially. And sometimes you really have to like look back at something and like process it. But I've never gone on a journey and been like, Oh man, that was a waste. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man, I wish I had you're getting, yeah. Yeah. You're getting something out of it. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. Like even, in the end. even going to, um, teach English in South Korea, I did not have a good time. Like I did not enjoy my time in South Korea at all. There was, there were some good parts, you know, but for the most part, I was just like, you know, this kind of was a waste. This isn't what I wanted. And, you know, I've had to really search hard to find things to do to make this worth it, even though every day is not great for me. I don't particularly love this culture. Uh, I don't love the school I'm teaching in, but you know, it taught me like, okay, how do you deal with disappointment? How do you deal with being in a situation where it's not going to provide anything for you that you don't search for? And that is a lesson that I took to Shikoku. I think it's this idea. I I don't know. Maybe it gets a bit perpetuated on like Instagram, you know, these other places, but it's like, oh, well, you just travel and like it should be fun and you should be happy all the time. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, it's an experience, you know? You're having an experience and that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be happy all the time. I've had trips where I'm just like high all the time. Like, oh my God, this is crazy. Like I'm buzzing on, on not not from any uh, illicit substances. Well, maybe like occasionally on the time, but not the whole yeah. time. Yeah, you, know? you got to have fun. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're just like, wow, you're just up. You're like, wow, this is, yeah, this is incredible. And then, you know, other journeys that have been, you know, up and down or some parts are, are harder or whatever, but it's like, that's, you got to take the whole thing as an experience. So like, I mean, I, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind, like this expectation of like, well, I'm just going to get out of my job and then like, I'm going to go on a, a, a trip and like, my life's going to be like the greatest thing ever every day. I mean, it, it can be certainly, but it can also be, it's an yeah. experience. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's uh, something like there was kind of a struggle early on writing the, writing my book, uh, because, you know, I was, I had this amazing friend named Matt, uh, who's still one of my good friends. 
uh, who was helping me like turn, like edit the book, basically like reading over everything and like helping me, you know, learn some of the harder lessons of writing a book, like flat out saying, Paul, this is only interesting to you. You need to cut this section. Like no one else is going to care. Um, which is very hard to hear, but very important. Um, and we were working on like, okay, well, what did you learn at the end? Like, what's the big takeaway? And besides writing the book to be, you know, an entertaining beach read and also basically a historical and cultural guide to the Shikoku pilgrimage. Like I include a lot of, uh, I include a lot of the like legends of it and a lot of descriptions of temples and history, but it's also a story about coming back kind of neutral on it. Like knowing that something, knowing I'd done something very impressive and knowing that I changed somehow in a way I couldn't place, but you know, to not look upon that as discouraging to come back from something and not feel a hundred percent enlightened and changed, you know, that it can take years before you look back and be like, Oh, that was a very formative time in my life. Yeah. But you know, you, it's not a movie. You don't, you don't get the code right. at the end, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that in and of itself is the, the lesson, right? Yeah. Yeah. That sometimes life is a bunch of like smaller lessons that you carry with you rather than one big life changing, you know, the climax at the end. Yeah. How long is, is the uh, pilgrimage in terms of like days or miles? I mean, you can do them at, do it at a different pace. Seven, it's 750 miles. I did it. I was worried about my flight home. So I, I did it, I think too fast. I did it in 42 days. Um, if I had to do it again, I would definitely just do like 15 miles a day, but also my feet were killing me and I wanted to finish it as soon as possible. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, just like for people that are interested in this one in particular, like, do you want to speak quickly to the, I like to get into these big, you know, discussions on what enlightenment and all this stuff, but like just logistically speaking, I mean, are there free places to stay roughly? How much does it cost? What are sort of like the logistics involved? Sure. Um, so if you are walking it, which I assume most of your listeners would do or potentially bike riding it, there are uh, free places to stay called Tsuyado, and those are only for um, walking pilgrims. Uh, Tsuyado could be, you know, a, a dirty mattress laid down in a garage uh, next to a temple. It could be the basement uh, of a temple. It could be, you know, just a little a little hut on the side of the road with a sliding door. Um, you can also stay. I camped. I put up a tent every night or most nights. Um, but there's also little covered rest stops along the way. And some of them are furnished pretty good. Like some of the rest stops, you know, had a cooler with uh, fresh cans of coffee in it. Is it because it's like urban and rural or is it, can you? you um, it is mostly 90% of the pilgrimage. You're going to be on a highway, like walking on concrete. So be sure to know that. But yeah, it's uh, it's very rural. I mean, it's Japan's most rural island. They create most of the rice in Japan. And it was so isolated, there wasn't even a bridge built there until the 80s. Um, so yeah, you're 
you're going around like the temples are kind of everywhere. You know, some temples are in cities, some temples are on, you know, mountaintops and some temples are right beside the ocean. And some are in the middle of rice fields or in the middle of a forest. Um, yeah, it's, they're very, they're very varied and that's kind of what makes it so cool. Yeah. How did you feel like the last day? (laughs) It felt so strange. Um, so I finished, I finished the pilgrimage, uh, in one 26 mile day, woke up the next day, came back to the temple, got my final stamp and there's a lot of stuff on the pilgrimage that I am going to not going to ascribe like, you know, a spiritual, a real spiritual like experience to like, I feel like personally I had one and I speak about that, but you know, it might not happen for everyone. And I don't want to give anyone an idea that the Island is magic. I think it is, but that was my experience. So with that caveat, the moment I arrived on Shikoku, it felt like I had been there for years. Like from the first day, it felt like this was the only place I'd been. And so when I hiked it, it felt like for better and worse, every day took forever. Every day was, you know, I didn't have a phone with me. I didn't have any electronics besides a camera. And so I was just living every moment on Shikoku for better or worse. And so those 42 days were basically years of my life having this unique experience where every day something different was happening, but also every day felt very similar. And then I finished it. And the last thing you do is go back to, um, go back to the mainland to a mountaintop temple called Koyasan, which is where Kukai is buried or not buried where, uh, there's a mausoleum where he rests in eternal meditation. And that's the, that's the first or last place a pilgrim goes, either to announce your journey to Kukai or report on your journey to him walking through this forest of or uh, it's a cemetery of thousands year of year old gravestones and some newer ones with, you know, massive cedar trees above it. It's incredible. It's a UNESCO heritage site. But in between those two moments, I got on this ferry and moved away from Shikoku. And it was overcast uh, on Shikoku my last day. So the ferry pulled away, and suddenly I just watched this island that I had, I'd been there for years, like shrinking, you know? This thing that seemed so long and took forever was just this tiny island, you know, covered in clouds as I stood in the sun. And I realized, like, 42 days is nothing, you know? I'd it's a month and a half. I'd spent a month and a half sitting at my desk, never really feeling it. But, you know, in that moment of just finishing Shikoku, it felt like I'd finished a years long journey. And then the moment I left the Island, I was just like, Oh, it was only 42 days. The, the spiritual experience you're referring to is this kind of this, uh, you really had this sort of different sense of time, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like a different sense of time. And I think, like, I felt kind of the same way on the Pacific Crest Trail. But again, that was six months. That was a long time. 
But yeah, on Shikoku, without any distractions, meditating every day, and trying to live every second, time was different. Time felt forever. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks So they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. How hard was it to go back after that? Um, it was strange going back. Uh, you know, because I started working again and I still didn't like it. And it felt like, it felt like I'd been on this big journey. But then I came back and nothing really changed. You know, I was back at work. You know, my friends all asked in the first week, you know, oh man, how was it? And I was like, I don't know exactly. Like, here's some stuff that happened there. Here's some stuff I thought. Here's kind of a funny story about uh, hiding from guards in a toilet stall. But, you know, it wasn't like this huge spiritual journey until years later, I looked back on that and I was like, why did I, why was I so like adamant about leaving my job after that? You know, why do I look at the world a little differently? It's because of uh, all that happened on Shikoku. So yeah, going back felt very normal, but it also felt like there was a clock running out on how much longer I could be at that job and really how much longer I could do office work and not, you know, continue to go live a life that excited me thinking about the Zen philosophy to getting back to that, you know, this idea of, you know, having goals and trying to accomplish things versus this idea of just being, how do you reconcile those two things? Um, I mean, I've been reading a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh recently. I kind of look at it as like something like Bruce Lee said once, you know, he said that the greatest style is no style. And what a lot of people seem to think is like, Oh, that means I shouldn't train in anything because you know, like I'm perfect right now. Right. And what Bruce Lee really meant. And if you do martial arts, you encounter this a lot is that what you're, 
when you're learning like, you know, the first punches and the first kicks, you're really just learning, you know, letters and how to spell. You know, when you learn combinations and you learn strategy, you're learning like words and how to put them together into sentences. And from there, you learn how to put them into paragraphs. But ultimately, your goal is to is your fighting style to be like your speaking. You know, it's your personality translated through your fighting style. And so I feel like having those goals and having the desire to get out and know yourself and be in the world is very important. I feel like that is how you first get on the path to enlightenment or spiritual wellness. But I also think that, you know, after the years of meditation and years of practicing as a monk, being able to let all of that go is how you ascend to the next level. You know, it's, uh, to put it another way, it's something I learned through Jewish mysticism, which I still find amazing, is there's this idea of these different aspects of God that began with Ein Sof, which is this unknowable, endless thing. You can think of it as what was before the Big Bang. You know, that's Ein Sof. And for whatever reason, Ein Sof decided to create a different part of itself. That's Ayin. Uh, and then Ayin, the world was created when an aspect of God went through into our world and created everything. It's called Chokhmah. It's the idea of differentiation and knowledge. And to get back to God, what you need to do is learn everything, study everything, and gain all of the knowledge that was contained within Chokhmah. And then you have to give that up. You have to give up differentiation, and that gets you back to God. So I think these are two ways of saying that it does, like the idea of Buddhism is this idea that we are all one and that there is no difference between anything. And that's the ultimate truth. That, But to get to that ultimate truth takes a lot of work and dedication and kind of wanting to be to have that truth revealed to you. And it's that desire to do that and setting yourself on the path to discover it is what allows you to get to the point where you can let that search go. And that is, you know, I think one aspect of how to describe enlightenment. But again, like this is this is stuff that I have don't have an academic degree in. This is just <laughs> things that I've read and experienced and, you know, sought out myself. But I am in no way an expert. You know, the idea of like, well, you have to have some things to shoot for, right? Striving and like, you, to, you know, to do these amazing things and live, have amazing travel experiences. You got to like do practical things like, you know, work to save money and try to put yourself out there in maybe uncomfortable ways and different things like that, which is all sort of, I think the process of that, it, it, the goal, at least for me is like, we'll do all those things, but like be in the process and in the moment while you're doing it. You know, it doesn't mean you can't shoot for those things, but it's like, well, like don't like place too high a value on the end destination. Like understand that that's where you're going, but like now let's, let's walk through this and like have, uh, have fun just being present. 
you know, on, on a good day is, is yeah. what I'm saying, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you know, it's something that I think is not taught to a lot of people that, you know, the struggle you're going through to understand the stuff and the struggle that, you know, you have where you're thinking, should I go this way or that way? Should I follow this dream or should I stay safe? Like that's all part of it. You know, it's not something keeping you from where you're ending up. It is, that is where, how you end up where you do. So to be present in the struggle is to be on your journey. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I always think it's good. Like if you're struggling to like appreciate, you know, give yourself a pat on the back that you're on the journey in the first place. I mean, say it's the people that are, you know, trying to, you know, maybe they're trying to like start up a business or something so they can work from their laptop and travel. And, you know, it's like, you know, there's all these different things that people undertake that are like, there's a lot of struggle with it, you know, but it's like, man, you're, you're like going for it. Yeah. You know, like that in and of itself is like, appreciate that about yourself. Yeah. Like appreciate how brave that is. Yeah. Like to go for it. I mean, that's real courage. And, uh, I don't know if this is entirely relevant, but it's something that I tell some of my friends, like a buddy of mine, you know, is incredibly stressed right now. He's starting a new job. He's about to have a new kid and he's just like, you know, I feel like I should be doing better, but instead it feels like I'm just keeping my head above water. And I was like, yeah, but you're keeping your head above water. That's amazing right now. (laughs) Right. Like the world's falling apart, man. And you're, you're still swimming. You're still breathing that like, congratulate yourself, go home and recognize your accomplishment in that, that, you know, you're, you're being very brave to keep going. You know, this is what I love about having, getting, have these conversations with awesome people like you, because I get to remind myself of the things that I need to do myself also like, Hey, you know, let's all give ourselves a pat in the back every once in a while. Let's chill out here. We're keeping our heads above water. All right. Woo. Hooray for us. (laughs) What do you have going on? I mean, what's, what's, what's the little voice inside your head been saying to you lately? Um, the I honestly, the little voice inside my head has been trying to just tell me that, you know, like I lost basically my main source of income through COVID. Uh, and, you know, I'm try I'm struggling really hard to, you know, try to get a second book out, but it's very difficult. Like most of uh, the only thing I'm paid to write about right now is marijuana. And even that's like not that much a month. But it's still like I am in, you know, a committed, loving relationship with one of the coolest people I've ever met in my life. You know, we're doing okay. My family's healthy. And that is good enough right now. You know, like this is being in the moment and trying to understand that, like, I think American society is built to make you unhappy. And in a way, that's good because that makes people strive and try to get more. But I think it's also built to only fetishize true success. You know, it's not built to fetishize the small successes, those little braveries that people take every day to try to make their lives better or try to make someone else's life better, you know, in some small way. You you know, you go 
and you spend some money that, you know, you could probably use on your own enjoyment that month, but you buy money and donate it to a food bank. You know, no one's writing a newspaper story about you spending 50 bucks to try to help somebody. But those are the things that we kind of need to celebrate in ourselves because no, because society isn't built to celebrate that in you. And so I feel like what I'm trying to do nowadays is just try to find my own smaller celebrations when I'm not planning for another gigantic journey. And, you know, when I'm stuck in writer's block for days or weeks or when I keep getting, uh, you know, rejection letters, which sadly I've gotten two <laughs> while we were talking for uh, pieces that I've written. But, um, yeah, you know, it's all about trying to just celebrate in yourself the victory of caring about how your life is going to go and working towards making a difference or being brave enough to make the choice that you want to. It's uh, just a great reminder on so many levels. I think a lot of us started off this uh, this whole COVID situation like, oh, well, we're going to use this opportunity to like, you know, again, that striving, you know, do this and you know, learn this and start this and all this stuff. And then you kind of settle into this thing. And it's like, you're right. I mean, just, Hey, being, it sounds like, you know, if we're going to sum it up in word, just being grateful for the things we have going on now and the small wins that we can control that we can contribute, you know, focus on those small things. Gratitude is healing. Yeah. And it's, you know, Gratitude's been cornied up by all of the, you know, self-help people and little memes that you see all over Instagram, usually by influencers or MLMs. But, you know, being grateful in your situation for anything is powerful. And it's a way of taking control of your moment and taking control of your emotion. To even yeah. find like one thing that's good, you know? Yeah. The book, by the way, again, I'll mention it, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, Misadventures on a Buddhist Pilgrimage. I, yeah, I feel like we got into maybe some of the heavier spiritual stuff uh, in some ways, uh, but also I should mention that the book's very funny. You're a funny guy. You're a great Thank you. writer. Thank you. Yes, please, everyone, buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't uh, gotten to read the whole thing, but um, I'm, I'm reading it actively right now. And uh, you know, some of the funny things you mentioned... I mean, there there are some pretty hilarious stories. If if maybe if you're not the one living it, like getting attacked by a boar the first day and things like that. But you mentioned earlier, like the imagination of the Japanese people and the culture. I mean, some of the things, like just some of these spirits that you you talk about. Like uh, I highlighted this passage: Kanaki Gigi. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Is an infant spirit that cries until it is picked up. And then it increases its weight until it crushes yeah. you. <laughs> like, what? And then there's um, Tanuki, a raccoon dog with gigantic dangling testicles that can stretch into any shape, such as a tent, club, or protective shield. What? Okay. Um, and then uh, what's this other one? A Shiare Yashiki, a giant disembodied foot that busts through the ceiling and demands that the terrified homeowner wash it. <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah, like, my, I don't even understand. Are these uh, favorite, like? It's, they're just these little mythical creatures that are just part of Japanese folklore. 
Like they just cruise around and yeah, like, they they they're just they're kind of like uh, you know fairies or imps or things in Western yeah. civilization. But again, like it just feel like but maybe off the the, wall. yeah, maybe this is uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, can't remember the word. Anyway, um, checking my knowledge right now, but I feel like every. Japanese, everything the Japanese imagine, like their cartoons, like their spirits, their stories, their little fantasy things, it always has like this extra weird right turn. Yeah, it's oddities. It's like, yeah, it's like, I I think it's called a kudan, but it's this like, it's a man faced calf that lives in the woods. And then when you pick, I think if you pick it up or see it, it announces a disaster and then dies. And so it's not just like you're seeing a man-faced calf and being like, oh, that's weird. But it's like, earthquake! And then it dies. You're just like, no! Right. I have so like many questions. Some extra element to these yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, is he making these up? But um, no, this is like, I've spent, you know, unfortunately just a handful of days in Japan and, and Tokyo. And like, it's like, it's very high on my list of places that... I want to go back to and explore. And I, I love the idea of, you know, human powered travel and whether it's a pilgrimage or just, you know, it's just like an experience, a journey, like we talked about and yeah, not wanting something from it, but just, just going on it, just to go on it. I mean, look forward to, to the day when I can get out there and, and, and do that again. I think we all do, you know, it's such an interesting culture on in so many ways. And uh, yeah, just one that I'm, you know, more and more fascinated by and, and definitely up there on the list. So anyway, if, if, if any of this is like sounding cool to you and you want to just read about, maybe you don't want to, you know, live the experience of walking all those days and maybe running into a, a, a giant infant spirit that cries until it's picked up, then increases its weight and crushes you. Um, you can read the book. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there's a listener out there, Paul, that's like, you know what? Bam, it's, they're having their own VHS tape you know, Shikoku pilgrimage moment right now. And they're like, I got to do this thing, man. So, um, thanks for getting out there and inspiring people on a lot of different levels, not just, you know, this particular journey, but just a lot of the stuff we talked about today. I mean, there are themes that, you know, run through the book and it sounds like, I mean, you've done some talks and different things around this. It sounds like stuff that, you know, it's kind of like important to you to put these things out there. And frankly, I think they're, important to hear these these philosophies and that's why we have these conversations to share these perspectives and we can take uh some of the the things we heard today and i'm sure you know make yeah. our lives a little bit better uh yeah <laughs> i mean that's that's the struggle right now it's just making your life a little bit better right now yeah. um but yeah thank you this i really enjoyed this conversation it was like deep and far-ranging and i really enjoyed it I had a great time as well. You got to shoot me some pictures, man, so we can uh, put this up with the show so people can can see a shot or, t- or two of you from uh, from the pilgrimage. I will do. Um, also, just a final plug for the book. Uh, if you want to read stories about me getting charged by a boar, collapsing from dehydration, hiding from guards in a toilet stall all night, breaking part of an ancient temple, getting a leg infection, and having a karate match on with a priest on a mountaintop. Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, available on Amazon. Because I haven't gotten to the fight, which sounds like, I mean, I love kung fu movies growing up. So 
I, I still have this hope that if you become like a martial arts master, you can somehow like like super ninjas or something like float across water, like flying almost. I'm not going to lie. That is kind of what got me into martial arts in the first place. <laughs> I, I am imagining you with like, you know, big robe and kind of, can we hear that story really quick? The, the battle or is that, should we save that? Uh, let's save that for, let's save that for people who buy the book for another time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, man. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Jason. This has been great. Take care. You too. There you have it. Thank you, Paul, for stopping by, sharing your thoughts, sharing your experience. And I love that I get to share these conversations with you. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, uh, this is a community-powered show. I like to remind you, I think in almost every episode, the show is for you. I made the show for you, and it's still for you. This is your platform. So if you ever want to get in touch, if you have guests you want me to bring on, topics you want to cover, you want to share something with the community, just drop me a line. Jason at zerototravel.com is my email. I read them all. And I've been encouraging people to send me some audio messages. Just open up your smartphone and record some audio. Instead of writing an email, you could write a short email and uh, share something. I'm going to share something that uh, Maxwell, who's a community member here uh, and a listener, shared with me, sent me a voicemail via email this week, and it kind of blew my mind. And then I was like, well, I got to share this on the next show. And then uh, as this show started coming together, well, I'll tell you that story in a second because this totally gave me the chills. And I'm also going to talk about pilgrimages. I just want to share some thoughts on that in just a moment. First, I do want to say a quick uh, one last thank you to Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show. Again, they have that sale going on, tortugabackpacks.com slash zero. That'll track from this podcast. And when you check out, you will be able to take advantage of this sale that runs through December 21st. You can save 20% if you spend 200 bucks. You can save 25% if you spend 300. And if you spend 500 or more, you save 30%. And again, that discount's automatically applied at checkout. You do not need a coupon code at all. You just need this link, tortugabackpacks.com slash zero. And you can take advantage of this sale. Again, I mean, you can go on and on about why I love their travel gear. I mean, if this, if these backpacks are holding up here in Norway where the weather is, uh, you know, not always the best, I would say, uh, you can be confident that they're going to hold up for you on your trip. You know, one of my uh, biggest pet peeves when it comes to travel gear, uh, particularly backpacks, is when a zipper breaks. Because once a zi- if you don't have good zippers on your packs, you're screwed, right? I've never had a zipper break on any of their backpacks, any of them. And that's just one small little tidbit. I want to share one reason why I love uh, these packs. So check them out, tortugabackpacks.com slash zero. You'll also be supporting this podcast if you go through that link. And you'll be taking advantage of the sale, which they never do, runs through December 21st. So go grab a gift for yourself or for another travel uh, lover in your friend or family circle. Thanks again. Okay, let me share with you this clip I got via email from Maxwell. Again, feel free to do this. Just record me a voicemail and send it because I really love that I can share uh, voice messages that I get like this or audio recordings on the podcast and you get to hear the voices of other people that are around the world listening to this show. No, you're not alone. That's right. You're part of this community here, and uh, it's always nice to hear some of your voices. And if you have something to share, like Maxwell did, it's always nice to be able to uh, to share other perspectives and ideas and thoughts 
with the community from uh, people out there that are a part of it. So I will share this clip with you from Maxwell that I got via email, and then we'll talk about it in a second and, and why it gave me the chills. Jason, congrats on seven years. You mentioned it in your last episode that you just crossed this milestone for your podcast, and that's amazing, man. Uh, after you said that, I realized that this year I also crossed the seven-year mark for my own business, and then my wife and I are also approaching our seven-year anniversary, so it's really put things into perspective, and it's gotten me thinking about these seven-year chunks of time, um, how much we change and grow, and how much life in general can transform in that time span. So if you look at my kindergarten and elementary school, that was seven years. Middle school and high school was another seven years. Uh, I went to college and my undergrad and grad school were also seven years. Uh, and then I finally started my working career. And if you fast forward another seven years, that's when my first child was born. So uh, for some reason, my life has revolved around this kind of seven-year cadence. And I know that might not be the case for everyone else. You know, some lives progress faster or at a slower pace. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's, I just think it's great to look back and discover these chunks of our lives where we can really see how much we've learned, grown, and accomplished. Because there are times, especially here in 2020, where it's easy to get lost in the weeds. Anyway, just want to say here's to your seven-year anniversary, to how far you've come in this, and let's just cherish how amazing it is. Take it seven years of everything that life throws at you and get excited for the next seven. Thanks, Jason. See you next week. Thanks for sharing, Maxwell, and thank you for the congratulations on seven years of the podcast. And it's really cool to hear how how your life has come together in these seven-year intervals and what kind of gave me the chills when I was putting this episode together. I didn't realize it because I recorded this interview with Paul a while back, but you heard the part where he talked about how he set seven goals and these seven goals allowed him to kind of accomplish all of these different things. And it's just like, whoa, like Maxwell had this whole perspective on these seven-year time chunks and I've had seven years of podcast and then Paul was talking about how these seven goals were so important to him and how basically allowed him to, you know, become the person he wanted to be. And all of this was kind of like, whoa, this is coming together in a, in a crazy way. You know, there's seven continents out there. I don't know. I'm just saying. So maybe that number is different for you. Maybe your, uh, your sacred number, your magic number is, is intervals of five or three or whatever. I, either way. I think time chunking like this, thinking about uh, life in these chunks, uh, maybe whether you're reflecting or looking forward, can be a really uh, incredible way to kind of kind of view things and also help you plan where you're going next as we're coming into the new year. Of course, it's always a, a time of year where people are doing a lot of planning and goal setting and things like that. And you think about this in chunks, and I, I've often done this in my life, it's just I, I feel like things are a lot overwhelming if you're trying to you know build a life or build a career or something that's kind of like a just such a big never-ending thing right but when you kind of say like hey how do I want my life experience to be in the next three years or five years or seven years what kind of things do I want to learn what do I want to try out what what might I want to do what might I want to see what kind of lifestyle might I want to live 
it's it kind of takes a lot of the pressure off in in a way you know if you're i'll give you a specific example if you're somebody who's like trying to build a career but you're also feeling pulled to travel you might be like all right well you know what looking at the next five years of my life i want to have the experience of being a nomad and you know traveling around for two years and, and not having a home for example or living in a van or you know some of these unconventional lifestyles that we've talked about or i want to have the experience of biking across uh, the USA or across Europe, whatever the case is. And if you want to have that experience in the next, say, three years or five years, whatever time chunk you're looking at, you know you're going to have to probably make some changes and do some things different and make some decisions. And maybe you realize trying to build the career in the way you have been isn't going to really fit in because you're not going to be able to do those other things. So it, it can just kind of help you prioritize and reframe uh, the way you're looking at life. Of course, we all, we don't know how much time we have, of course. So each of these uh, increments that we get each and every day is really a gift. And uh, anyway, uh, I thought this was just a really cool perspective that Maxwell shared. And that's why I wanted to share it with you. And you can see this is why I'm encouraging you all to reach out to me and share some of your thoughts or perspectives or tips Whatever. Just drop me a line. Jason at ZeroToTravel.com. Again, is my email. Open up your smartphone and uh, record an audio message and send it over. This is an amazing and diverse listening community here, and I want to share more of what you have to say. So I can't do that if you don't hit me up. And of course, ZeroToTravel.com. If you haven't signed up yet, I mean, please, what are you waiting for? If you're loving the podcast, you've been loving the podcast, you're not on the email list yet, that's where you can find out about all the other stuff we're doing, whether it's online workshops or we've got a side hustle success challenge coming up in January. We're going to help people that want to leave their nine to five jobs eventually start a side hustle uh, and get started and take that those first steps. So uh, we got that coming up. You can't find out about any of this stuff if you're not on the email list because it's not all on the podcast. So sign up if you haven't yet. Zero to travel.com. Just hit the homepage and sign up and we can keep in touch over there. would love to welcome you into that community. Before I let you go, of course, I'm going to have a quote that I'm going to leave you with. I'm going to reach in. We'll see if we get some more serendipity in this show. I'll reach into my little quote drawer where I have uh, some old... Um, sheets from my little zen calendar by the way this calendar i'm such a fan it's called wisdom of the east i always have it every year and my mom gets it to me and i have it sent over to norway she sends it in a package it's like eight or nine bucks or something but you get a little chunk of wisdom every day anyway i'll reach into the quote drawer and pull one of those out in a second but i want to talk about pilgrimages first uh this is something that I'm very interested in, I like this cross-section of, or I should say intersection of spirituality and travel, and I think that it can provide an interesting experience for anybody, even if you're not a quote-unquote spiritual person. It's just, it's setting a different, uh, I guess, energy, maybe, or, or tone or framework around a journey, right? It's, it's one thing to do a long-distance hike, uh, say the West Highland Way in Scotland. We have an episode coming up about that in the future. Uh, but that's there's no religious uh, tie-in with the West Highland Way. But if you're talking about the Camino de Santiago or some of these other pilgrimages like the one Paul talked about today, it's just a different, it's a totally different kind of cultural experience. So even if you're not a religious person, this is kind of the point I wanted to get to. I think we can hear a word like, religion or religious devotion and just automatically think, you know, church and religion, 
as an institution, but when you're talking about the definition of a pilgrimage, it's a journey, especially a long one, made to some sacred place as an act of religious devotion. You know, what if your your devotion right now, or, or you're devoted, maybe not in a religious way, but your devotion might be to, you know, being out on the open road and travel. You know, maybe the sacred place for you that you've always wanted to go is uh, is to visit, uh, whatever, uh, Iguazu Falls, because, you know, nature's sacred to you. And you want to see uh, this waterfall. You want to feel the mist on your face. You want to be there. You want to experience that. You know, these are different ways to think about the pilgrimages. It does not have to be something that somebody else already defined as a pilgrimage because it, uh, you know, goes through churches and it's this ancient walk. There's a certain cultural element to that. But you can create your own pilgrimage, right? And you don't have to be religious. Just think about things that you're devoted to. What's a sacred place to you? You know, in some ways, I mean, aren't certain types of trips that we take really our own pilgrimages, whether there are religious elements involved or not? In some ways, maybe. Maybe. So, anyway, a few thoughts on uh, what a pilgrimage means or what it might mean to you. Interesting way to undertake a journey. The intention behind a journey can always open up in some way different types of insights we may have on the journey itself. There's so much more going on in travel than uh, just going and seeing something, isn't there? I mean, look, that's why this podcast is here. We get to talk about this stuff, and uh, it's such a deep topic. It's never-ending. I love it. I love it. It's not just about going and seeing something and doing something that you want to do. It's just so much more going on, And, and if you listen to the show... I'm sure you live that, you know that, you embrace that, and you love that about travel as much as I do. So anyway, there you go. Just wanted to share those thoughts. I'm going to reach into my magical little quote right now. Let's see if uh, serendipity calls again. And uh, this quote, let's see what will we land on here. Okay. I did this blindly. I'm pulling out this quote from uh, Chang Zhu. When a man tries to extend his power over objects, those objects gain control of him. He who is controlled by objects loses possession of his inner self. Leave you with that. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Peace and love. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 